I don't know about your hometown. There's some really strange names of hometown. I hear there's a place called Gumshoe, Texas, Misery, Oklahoma, uh, places like that. Uh, my hometown, in other words, where I spent the first few years is what you see up here. It's called Colbrook, New Hampshire. Or if you're from that area, Colbrook, New Hampshire. And uh, I spent the first four years of my life there and we moved out in about 1952, and, uh, and then I've returned twice, and they painted it since the last time. Uh, I've returned twice, once was six years later, with the whole family, and the second time was at our 30th uh, wedding anniversary in 2005. Barb and I wanted to see what it was like. All my memories were pretty much the same. The town has not changed, especially here on Main Street. But we have two family memories that I go back to all the time. First of all, poor. Uh, I will always remember having to pick dandelions on the street for our vegetable that night. My dad held down three jobs and he could barely keep the family fed. The second thing is in the back of our house, which is a salt box, that's just a square with two stories, uh, in the back of our house, you would find this indentation on, on, the, on the weatherboards. And what happened was, as I was given a sled for Christmas, I knew how to get on the sled. I knew how to go down a hill on the sled. We had a hill in back of our house that went right down to the house. What I didn't know is how to stop the sled or steer the sled at three years of age. So apparently the story goes, that my brother, six years older than me, is yelling at me, turn, turn, and I'm yelling at him, how, how? <laughs> the sled hits a, a stone or something and it stops, but Jim keeps going, and the indentation is from my first concussion, apparently, that was right there. And in uh, 2005, it's still there. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, <clears throat> The town now has 2,300 people. I don't know if that is more or less. But six years after we left, I was about 10 or 11 years of age, my whole family returns. We go from Pasadena all the way back to New Hampshire. And as we go back, we are driving an Oldsmobile 98. There's nothing bigger than a, except for maybe a tuna boat, okay? And my dad feels so successful as he goes there. You see, we left poor, but six years later, we all show up and we're like uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, the Clampett family, except I'd call, I guess you'd call us the Pasadena Albanians. Um, they honored my father for the courage to move out of there. So on his return visit, he goes back to the American Legion Hall to, correct with all of his old, uh, to connect with all of his old friends. And he wants also to thank the man who one Friday night was so drunk that he looked my father in the eye and he said if he did not use his talent and drive and move out of Colbrook, he'd be ruining his children's future. My dad returned to success and he, brought, he bought a round of beers, apparently, for the whole Legion Hall that night because he had made it to middle class after moving out of poverty, and he was never moving back. But what about somebody 
who uh, returns to his hometown and is successful, but in that success, everyone seems to be in the hometown offended by the success. What happens when that, when that occurs? What does that say about your hometown? What does that say about the one returning? We are this morning in a passage that shows Jesus returning to his hometown. And I want to say this. My dad was not the Messiah. But he got a much better reception in Colebrook, New Hampshire than Jesus gets in Nazareth. I'd like you to go with me, if you can, to Mark chapter 6. We are studying the gospel of Mark. And together we want to read it for the purpose of knowing Jesus. And if we know who Jesus is, following him is much more doable. And this account begins with Jesus of Nazareth. It just says it right, straightforward. I say it every morning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. So it is written to a skeptical Roman population. But it's also written to a persecuted Christian church in the Roman Empire. And we see in, these, in, this, in this gospel what both Jesus says, but also what he does. And so we have looked at three of the five greatest miracles. Now we take a pause for the next, this week and next week. We've looked at those five great miracles, and we see that Jesus can calm the storm. He has power over nature. He exercises a man with multiple demons, so he has power over Satan and his minions. He heals a bleeding woman, but more than that, he raises a father's dead daughter. So now Jesus returns to his hometown. He's preaching among many places, but he comes to Nazareth. And he has not been there probably for a couple of years, but his reputation precedes him. And here's what happens. I'm in Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Quote, where did this man get these things, they asked. What is this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Two amazements. First amazement, who is this guy? Is this the same one that left us a couple years ago? And Jesus amazed at their lack of faith. Well, there is hometown resentment. It says it right there. He goes to his hometown. Uh, he brings his disciples with him. When he left, he had no disciples. He was not even teaching. He teaches in the synagogue. But he teaches as one who has never had any uh, rabbinic education. And so when Jesus teaches in the other cities, people are always amazed because he teaches as one who has authority. You see, Jesus knows the scripture. He ought to. He wrote them. 
And he knows the heart of his father. So it's not just what does the scripture say, but what does it mean? What did the father intend? And he and his father share the very same heart. But in Nazareth, as he goes there, there is this ongoing amazement. And it's followed by this resentment. And so they ask those questions. Where did he get these things? How did he get this wisdom? Who gave him this authority? Hey, we remember him as a carpenter, maybe not the greatest of all carpenters. And here's his brothers and here's his sisters. They're still around. Jesus is teaching like he knows the scriptures, but not just that he's memorized them. He knows their intent. He teaches about the kingdom of God being near, meaning that Jesus is bringing God's rule to earth as he speaks and he's bringing God's rule to earth in himself. He's claiming to be the Messiah, though he's very careful not to claim it. He does it through intention and insinuation. And so this is not the Jesus who left Nazareth a couple years ago, leaving his younger siblings to care for their mother and for each other. They are now all probably approaching uh, 30s also. So next, the word that's out about Jesus as he returns is he does miracles. He does big miracles. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. He's done all of these things. And the greatest of all is what we looked at last week. The dead can be raised through the power of Jesus. So every, everyone realizes that Jesus is really special. But... Um, not those who live in Nazareth. You see, before he launches his ministry, all of Nazareth knows him. He's a carpenter. We know his brothers and sisters. He's, they're all normal people. Why should he be any different? More than that, they know Mary and Joseph left Nazareth with Mary pregnant before their wedding day. Now, that's something you don't forget that sort of carries along with you over the decades. Hey, when I lived in New Hampshire, we had this thing called a party line. I mean, I was only there for four years. That didn't mean, oh, no, that's an 1-800 number now that you call for a party line. That's not what I mean, okay? What happened was every town just had a few numbers. And so families would share that number. So when your phone rang, it could be one of 20 people. So when it rings, you got so few phone calls, everyone picks up the phone and listens in. When you find out it's not for you, you are supposed to hang it up. But nobody did. <laughs> so you just listened to the town gossip as it went back and forth and back and forth. We didn't need a newspaper. We had one, but we knew all the news. We knew everything that was going on. We knew every dog that was not being cared for. We knew every scandal. We knew every child that, uh, that was getting into trouble. Uh, and, and, and you didn't have to wait till the weekly newspaper. You got it that day. So people may forget some things, but I want you to know people did not forget that Jesus was conceived before Joseph and Mary's official wedding date. So that's strike one. He has no education. That's strike two. He did no miracles there before, so why should we believe he's doing miracles now? That's strike three. So 
Jesus says to them very carefully, only in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own house. You read in the Gospel of John, and you read in Mark chapter 3 where his parents come in, I'm sorry, where his family comes in to do an intervention. They think Jesus has gone insane. They think Jesus has a Messiah complex. He should. So uh, they come in, uh, he comes into town, and uh, he gets rejected. Everywhere else, people rush to hear him. And they rush because they know they may be healed if they can be with Jesus. But in Nazareth, all he hears is skepticism. Like unplanned Jesus, he may be loved, but they cannot believe he's special. They cannot believe he's the long-awaited Messiah. So his teaching is questioned, and his miracles are few, because God honors faith. Well, I want you to do a comparison now because that leaves us in one place, but we now get to the next uh, place where Jesus says, I'm going to go to other villages. Maybe these other villages will hear me because many other villages already have. And more than that, he says, I'm not, I'm not just going to go to other villages, but I'm going to take my disciples and I'm going to send them to be my representatives in these other villages. This is how it goes. It says, verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. Calls his disciples together for the purpose of sending them out. That's why he chose them in the first place. He chose them to be with them and he chose them to train them, to teach, to heal, and to exercise demons. Now the time has come. It is time to fulfill that purpose. And as these disciples go with Jesus, they realize they have a model. They've been with him now for some time. Their model is Jesus. And he's been going to the villages and they've been with him. Now they are going to go to the villages without him. Now that would be scary and I would understand that. But do you understand the difference between the people of Nazareth and the 12 disciples? The people of Nazareth have skepticism. They, they do not believe. They cannot let Jesus be the Son of God. But the 12, they go out and they have a commission. What the commission is this, Jesus entrusts them with authority over evil spirits. And understand the Bible says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, John, the apostle, wrote that. It's in 1 John 4, 4. And I want you to know that he wrote that after he was sent out. How did he learn that greater is he who is in, in you than he who is in the world? I think he learned it on that mission trip. Be careful. Mission trips are dangerous. So uh, all of them now are understanding that, hey, when we say to a demon, you know, come out of him, that demon is going to come out. But more than that happens. Uh, they had that commission. They have instructions. Let me read those, okay? I'm in verse 7. And these were, uh, verse 8, and these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Isn't that an amazing list? Uh, Barb and I spent several times uh, going to Romania with the, 
with a team that included people from many churches, but here uh, at Bergen Park Church. And uh, when we went, there was, I think, my second time there. Our luggage didn't make it. And Barb goes, what am I going to do? Everything is in that bag. I opened my knapsack, which I carried with me, and I had a change of clothes. You think of contingencies when you take a trip. You always want to have some things extra on hand. At least I've learned that. Barb, not so much. But as, you know, and she suffered for nearly a whole week, and I just kept washing things and dumpster diving. And, and anyway, it worked out. You know, uh, we learned on that trip that God provides, but sometimes not when you want him to. Sometimes it's very humbling. I don't know what you've learned on mission trips. We'll talk about that in a bit. Well, there's no contingencies. Now, no extra supplies, no food, no money, no extra clothing. Secondly, there's no upgrades. Do not accept a better deal for accommodations. In other words, if somebody invites you in because they feel sorry for you, but they don't have much, and you're doing a good job and more people listen to you, and, and somebody who has much more wealth it will give you much better food and a much better bed. If that person comes to you and says, you want to stay with me for the rest of your time here? You say, no, I'm happy. No upgrades. And finally, no apologies. You speak as I have taught you to speak. And if they don't receive the message that the kingdom of God is here now in Jesus Christ, the son of God, then you shake the dust off your feet and you move on. Don't try to reason, just proclaim. Wow, that's quite a mission. And they go out and they do that mission. Notice they go out in pairs. That helps the, uh, you, you might say, the authenticity, the, the value of what they're saying. Uh, but we do not know how long they were gone for. We do, not, we do know, though, that when they return, they just can't wait to tell Jesus all that they had said and done. You see, they teach about the kingdom just as Jesus has taught. They drive out the demons just as Jesus has. They anoint the sick with oil and God heals them. Not the oil, God heals them. So it's an experience where as you've done it once, you come back and it's really heady stuff. Your, your ego is pumped up if you're not careful. It can make you think you are really somebody. But it's intended to have you believe that God is really somebody and he is really something. And you have had the privilege of being used by him. Spring break, 1966. 1966, not 18, like some of you believe, okay? I volunteer for a mission trip. I had been a Christian now for about six months. I had all of Christianity pretty much under my belt. I knew exactly what, I mean, I was even put in leadership after just a few months. So I had this Christian thing pretty much figured out. So we go on a mission trip and they say, this will not be like most of your classes. You're going to have to prepare. Prepare? Okay. We're doing Bible studies on Galatians. We get together every week to report you know, what we're reading and what we're learning. I'm told to write out my testimony and to memorize it because somewhere I'll be sharing that testimony 
And I'm also told to read a book on Mormonism. This is a crazy trip, my first mission trip. Uh, we were visiting the Mormons and the Navajos. How you put those together? <laughs> it's basically location. They're not that far apart. So uh, we went to the Navajo Nation. And I had written out my, my testimony about trusting in Jesus. I had practiced it. I had in front of a mirror. I had memorized it. And so we're taken out on this Jeep and through these gullies all over this red dirt. And, and, and we get to a Hogan and we enter this dark, uh, this uh, dirt floor Hogan. And we go in and we sit down and there is an old lady, three students, the translator, and an old Navajo lady. And she is the mother of the translator. So we're talking and again, how Navajos know Navajo, I do not know, because it is the hardest language around. Uh, it was used in World War II to confuse everybody listening in. It is very difficult language. But she speaks to her mother, and something's going on, and she tries to tell us what mom is saying. And then the translator looks at me, and she goes, Jim, would you please share how you place your faith in Jesus Christ with my mother? All that training. All that preparation, I open my mouth and I go blank. Everything I had learned and worked on flies away. More than that, I was overcoming stuttering, and sure enough, it comes. <laughs> sure enough, it comes right back, and there I am stuttering again, and I just am so humiliated at it. I share something, and to this day, I do not know. I know Jesus was in there somewhere. But when it was all over, we get back in the Jeep and we drive back to the mission. And I apologized to the, uh, to the translator. I said, gee, I, I did a terrible job. I'm so sorry. And she goes, my mom listened. To what? 30 years later, over 30 years, somehow, some, for some reason, I'm talking to a Navajo mission on a phone. From, it's here. And, and I'm talking to people in a Navajo mission. And I said, you know, that trip that we took back in 1966 meant so much to me. I think I did a terrible job, but it meant so much to me. The lady says, that woman, that mother of the translator, died believing in Christ. I said, couldn't it be from me? Because No, she goes, there were many links in the chain. But she did something. And she goes, we still talk about that mission trip. We have several going through, but God did something special on that mission trip. And uh, we still talk about that woman. Wow. What's the moral of the story? Do not go on a mission trip. <laughs> Why? It will change everything. Now, we're talking about a mission trip next year. If I haven't talked you out of it, I'll, I'll keep trying. It, it says that at the end there, that uh, in Mark chapter 6 at the end, it, it says the apostles gathered around Jesus after this was over. Again, we don't know if it was a couple weeks or whatever. And they reported to him all that they had done and taught. So they end their mission, they reunite, and they tell each other uh, and, and Jesus uh, how they had seen God at work in such great ways. Now, I think 
God was in putting these two accounts together. They are back to back for a reason. And I want to ask you, what is your faith address? Not your street address. Not your work address. What is your faith address? Would you say Nazareth? Or the villages in Galilee that received Jesus? Where would you put yourself? Um, I, I, I want to say this because I, I want to say, I've lived in both places. Uh, the book of Hebrews has a chapter that gives multiple examples of what it's like to be in the Galilean villages. Uh, it, it mentions all these great names, uh, great people of the faith. Noah, you know, he built a boat and was ridiculed because it took so long and there was no water around. Abraham, willing to give his only son. And Moses, who couldn't speak but had to go back to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And then you hear lesser names like Rahab and Barak. You see, but the one thing they all share in common is this one little, uh, little, little word called faith. And they are commended for their faith. It says in chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, meaning those on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. I'm not going to get into the legalities of that. Just say that they died still believing but not seeing. We live both believing and seeing because Jesus has come. Jesus has lived. Jesus has died for our sins. Jesus has resurrected. Jesus has ascended. And we understand that Jesus is returning. And we put our trust in that because everything else has happened just as he said. So on this side of the cross, in the empty tomb, we have the Son of God, Jesus, portrayed for us. We represent the one that we know. And we know that he is at work. Can I ask, you know, do you, can you honestly say, what is your current faith address? I'd like to say if you, check, well, just check out these things. You might live in Nazareth if, okay? If you are a faithful church attender, but not sensing God is working in you or around you, your address may be Nazareth. If you have stopped praying for God to use you on a consistent basis, you might be living in Nazareth. If your attitude towards following Jesus has been there, done that, because I've been doing this for so long, your faith address might be Nazareth. If you're guilty and offended by exciting new Christians who just can't stop smiling about their faith, you might have a faith address in Nazareth. Move. Move. Find yourself instead. Find ways to be joining into the villages of Galilee. 
that you understand that you are a representative of Christ Jesus wherever you go. And I want to say this. Um, you may never leave your current job. You, know, you may retire from your current job. Oh, who would do that? Me, okay. But are you anticipating that God will be working where you work? You may never leave the house you live in. You may live there the rest of your life. But do you sense the spirit of God hovering over your neighborhood at work? A simple visit on a dirt floor to a woman that I will never see again with a testimony I totally blow, but God is at work. What is your current faith address? Your faith in Jesus Christ and the ways you see him at work in and around you will only grow because you understand faith and works fit together. And take it from me because I've been there. Stay away from Nazareth. Be very uncomfortable if that's where you're living now. Let's pray. Father, at this time, it was your spirit that put those two back to back. They probably didn't occur simultaneously. But what a stark contrast. Father, I want to be representing you in the villages of Galilee. I want to be doing it in my neighborhood. I want to be doing it in my community. I want to be doing it as my family will be gathering several times over the next few years. I want to be doing it as Barb and I return to Australia. I want to be doing it wherever you allow my feet to go. And I pray right now that for each of us, we would be totally dissatisfied with a faith, faith address of Nazareth. Just, we're not staying here. We're moving out of here. I ask this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, we have a baptism we want to do right now. So um, uh, I'm going to go into this door and come out a totally different man. This is my phone booth, okay? And it'll take me about two minutes. Uh, and then uh, we have a video we want to show you and, and a very quick baptism. This is a... Uh, thing that we had planned and it's it's very very special right uh can we david <laughs>